Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Hello, everyone. I am back with another interview, and this time we're with Todd Davis. And Todd Davis, you are a professor at the Delta State University down in the Mississippi Delta region, I presume. You are working in sport and recreation management and doing outdoor leadership, and you're working with issues of equitable program and access to the outdoors to all kinds of different populations down there. I'm really excited to be talking to you here on the podcast. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about what you do. What are some of the things that you teach there at the college? And what are you covering? What are some things you're finding as you're diving into these topics? Because outdoor sports and recreation and everything, are it's all about getting everybody outside and doing awesome things. So I would say it's a forest education, but it's also a little bit different than what some people think of as forest education for a school or a wilderness survival program. So tell me a little bit about what some of your days look like and, and who you work with. Yeah, it is a difference. And you may not be able to see me since this is a podcast, but I'm a white Caucasian male living in the Mississippi Delta. And the you know Delta State University's population is pretty split, 50-50. We have African-American students and Caucasian students. And we're also very split here with our economic, social economic. And I think anybody listening to this or observing or tuning in, I, I'm hoping that they know or they you know are aware that outdoor recreation availability and access and gear and equipment is really a privilege. It's yeah. probably one of the top privileges is it, as as folks have. Yeah, my work here is in sport and recreation. So I do teach undergraduate and graduate classes for students that want to coach sports or be involved in athletics or fitness and wellness programs. And then we certainly have a degree for our students that want to be involved in parks and recreation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I started out in in directing our outdoor program, which was a credit-based outdoor program for any student on campus to participate in some outdoor excursions. I think we modeled we we modeled our program similar to what universities do where it's student-led kind of things where students can sign up for this backpacking trip and they just go and have fun. We certainly wanted that but we also wanted to attach some type of learning, some type of environmental conscious or educational awareness with Leave No Trace. The students here at Delta State, while I just mentioned, are from diverse backgrounds, socially, economically, culturally, they are also diverse with their knowledge base in what recreation is. I've had students that have never left the state to international students who are broadly scoped in adventure. Just leaving their country to come to the United States and study is like sure. top echelon kind of stuff. That's exactly. That takes a huge amount of confidence. And you know, I, I really treasure those students and their ability to leave their country and come to somewhere to study. So again, that's the plate that I'm working with. And it's bizarre at times. Like I'll open up a tent they'll or they'll see the bag and they'll be like, what's in there? And I'm like, well, that's a tent. And some students are like, what do you do with that? You sleep in there. Um, They're like, no. Um, And then I have other students, of course, have want to bring their own tent because they're just so the 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 knowledge line, the base, if you were to draw a line of a spectrum, 
And I guess really that's what keeps me here is because you said you asked me what's my day to day. That's my day to day is anywhere on that spectrum from having students who and people, I, I would say students and adults and administrators that are at the very bottom of the spectrum that have no idea what we're doing to to the other end of champions and people that are like championizing our what, what we are doing and seeing the value and being able to equate some type of quantifiable outcomes and, and whatever, right. and then everything in the middle. So sure. Sure. yeah, it's, I, sometimes it's, I have to step back and be like, wow, like we are doing a ton of work. We have to reflect sometimes and remember that just those one students or just those two students is sometimes enough. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting to me thinking about that because, yeah, it, not every college is probably like that. Not every university is like mm-hmm. that. And so going to a place like that, you're probably really having to put on a lot of hats, wear a lot of different hats and uh, change conversation styles and communication yeah. and everything else. So that's tricky for anybody, in, in, in edu- especially in education, just because you're mixing it up all the time. Right. right. Yeah, that's really awesome what you're doing. And now, are you from that area? Are you, is this where you grew up? Yeah. It's, no, I'm not. I'm from about as far as away as possible from Mississippi. I grew up in Northern Idaho in really the woods and the wilderness. We, my family was, my father was a wildlife biologist um, from Ohio that was at Kent State during the riots and oh. decided that there was better opportunities out West. And he really wanted to be in big game management. And my mom was an educator and she grew up during Title IX, prior Title IX. My mom wasn't really involved in sports because Ohio and Midwest, there wasn't, there really wasn't a push for sports for women before Title IX. And even after, there was, these small schools didn't really understand what Title IX was. Title IX really wasn't about sports anyway. Title IX was making sure that we had equitable access to educational aspects, period. Yeah, my parents were born in the time when equality and equity weren't we're just being like the definitions were like literally being formed during that time the with the vietnam war and and kent state riots where my dad attended school there was just a it was a different time then and but my father was an avid outdoor adventurist hunting fishing and that's where he really found his calling to be he wanted to be in the woods and in the wilderness and do the work for sustainability and managing forests for wildlife and being that advocate for mother nature, essentially. So the logging companies and hunting corporations didn't come in and just wipe things out. I learned a lot of my values and ethics and and love for wilderness and love for adventure from him. Yeah. Uh, but I also learned the value of education and the value of commitment and working in the trenches for the betterment of mankind from my mom. And they are very, even today, that distinct on that spectrum. My dad would probably prefer to be out in the wilderness on his own, while my mom would prefer, would, would still, even though they're retired. Uh, so I, I still balance that. But I was born and raised on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, which was also fantastic. And as a child, I didn't really think much about it until I moved away from it and really treasured that experience and growing up with children of such deep, entrenched, rich culture and heritage. Yeah, it was just going to the powwows and going to the different celebrations of Native American cultures. And yeah, I miss some of that. But being in the Mississippi with our African-American cultures and and legacy and history, there are some similarities. Like they are Mm -hmm. very different. Don't get me wrong. But the nature of acceptance and knowing your place 
for me personally, and knowing where the work can be done to provide some equitable and equal opportunities, it's no really different than the Nez person. They were they were pushed out of their lands, and there's a large there's a large similarity of intolerance between what America has done to our lands and spaces. But what's ironic about that is that both of our both my all of my upbringing has been in this contentious times of cultures where space and place specifically for outdoors has always been a strange conversation with the Nez Perce they that group feels like the rivers and the lands were are their spaces yet most of them don't take it opportunity don't take advantage of it there's reasons behind that and there's certainly barriers but they have it accessible and they don't utilize it probably to the potential whereas in Mississippi they don't have opportunities for space and place and land. It is very white privilege dominated in Mississippi. Most of the land is commercial or privately owned or clubs, prestigious clubs. And I do think there is. And then, of course, African-American, from my studies and research, it suggests that a lot of our African-American brothers and sisters that are here, being outside was considered and working in the fields and working in the woods was like, an escapism to from slavery and from right. plantation owners. I've had the questions like, yeah, dude, why do I want to go out in the woods? Like my family for the last 300 years have tried to escape the woods and be a part of society. And you want to take me back in the woods in a tent? So <laughs> yeah. I laugh at that because it is a profound statement, but, and it has been a struggle to incentivize African-American students a bit to want to go back into the woods, especially when their grandmas or things they've heard about the woods have been such a negative connotation and such a yeah. negative stereotype. It's hard to be, it's hard to break that. And I've expressed to you before when we met briefly about the Mississippi River, the Mississippi River is just behind us 25 miles away. And there are, there are African-American students and families that will never venture over there because yeah. they have heard the horror stories about the river and the floods and what it does and how slaves were used to build that levee system. And there's just a, there's some dark history in yeah. space and place in Mississippi. It's just that simple. That's true. That's really true. It's interesting because I'm, I have Mexican American heritage and I remember working with my grandfather and he worked at racetracks a lot. He, we raised uh, thoroughbreds and some of the people that I would work with, they would ask me, what do you do, Ricardo? Oh, I teach uh, wilderness education. And they go, what's that? And I go, it's about living out in the wilderness. And they go, there was at least three of them that said, yeah, the last time I spent time in the wilderness, I was like moving across the Mojave Desert trying to get right. across the border. And they were just like, and I don't want to go back to that. So I don't know, you're not going to get me out there because right. they, they equate that with survival or they equate it with being like the lowest of the low and so they the urge is to kind of come here and then make something of yourself and become a man yeah. and become a property owner and which is understandable and at the same time sometimes that's led to a generation of children who were raised by people who didn't necessarily take the time to foster that real connection to the land. That's where it's so interesting to me to see people doing this really positive work. I know there's Jose Gonzalez and a Latino mm -hmm. Outdoors. They're doing a, a big 
push in that way. And then you have Rumat and Akima Price doing incredible work at, at Outdoor Afro and everything. So I'm just really excited to hear just more about this process because it's something that isn't really that well known in, especially in like wilderness education or nature based mm -hmm. outdoor leadership or everything, like everything you're saying rings a hundred percent true. Yeah. But that story for me isn't, hasn't always been known. When I moved here 16, almost 17 years ago, my experience was with Idaho and out Idaho outdoors and being mm -hmm. adventure-based. I think it's important to sometimes stipulate these differences. We kind of term outdoor recreation or outdoor adventure in this lump of this category. But even within yeah. that category, there are significant discipline differences. And But I don't think young people, especially young professionals, perhaps, especially in, in regionally, I just think sometimes people think that outdoor adventure or outdoor recreation is just this thing like everybody does. And and, I, and I'm guilty of that. Like when I moved here, I, my work with University of Idaho and being involved with their outdoor program. And then, of course, my own program. We talked about high risk, high adventure, that awe moment, like doing things like physically and but also being able to do those things because you had access to them. Right. Moving here, I wanted to bring that same sense of adventure that I appreciated and valued to these students because I thought you have this perception that, oh, if they if I do it and I like it, of course, they're going to like it and they're going to want to do it. And that first so the very first trip I ever designed was this spring break mountain biking and rock climbing trip to Moab, Utah. Right. And. We went out and, of course, set up the tables and had the recruiting events and the fair and almost for this big thing. Because I moved here in August or July, August and in 2007 and started setting up, buying the equipment. And it took me a semester to get things organized. So the first thing was this big spring break trip. And the entire van was white kids with this one African-American female who was from Maryland. And she was on the cross country team. And most of them were males, except for the one gal. And so I guess even then I was really like, oh, that's probably just the makeup of our university. We have mostly white and a few African-American, right. which was the furthest from the truth. The, further, the truth was it was very close to 50-50. And so the van, the very first van on my very first ever expedition out West to take these kids on this magical trip, I was so excited to go. And we drove, I drove 32 hours straight, nonstop to get the kids there to spend a week long adventure in Moab that I had gone and done myself. So sure. um, we stayed in these little cabins and in tents and we moved around and we biked all the easy trails and some hard trails and we rock climbed and it was great. On the way out, the, the young African-American female who was on the cross country team, who was not from the Delta, who had been exposed in a, and, and was a little bit privileged, her mom called on the way near when, when we got to the just outside the texas border and was on our cell phone and saying something about when are you coming home we're excited to see you and she was like oh i forgot to tell you i'm going to be going on this spring break trip with my class right and her mom just erupted on the phone i could hear her like what do you mean like we we talked about this you we were not allowing you to go and she's a mom i can make my own decisions and i'm i really wanted to go with my professor and my friends, and we're going to, to to Utah. And then it was like, you're leaving the state. Oh my right, God. Right. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. Like you not. So it was, and I could hear the conversation because 
she was right behind me on that in the bench seat. And it was basically like, you're a black woman. You you cannot go out and do those wild things that those white people do. And I want to talk to the professor. I want I'm calling the president of the university. You're getting a plane at the nearest stop. And for me, I was like, wow, like this is really serious. Like this woman yeah. has these are not fictional fears. Like this woman is literally fearful of her child's life. Yes. And absolutely. even though these children, they're not children, these are adult college students. And, and of course they signed all of these forms and paperwork. And that had never even occurred to me that there would be a family member concerned to this level. And then also adamant about that her daughter was not going to be doing things with white people. That was like the first, for me, that was my awe moment. Like, I was like, oh, this is not acceptable. There aren't families that just allow their kids to do this. And this woman is genuinely concerned. Of course, we pull over and I get on the phone with this parent and I do everything possible to convince her that what we were doing is a normal thing. Students go on adventures at all universities across the country that I'm aware of. And so sure. it just wasn't, it was just a, it was my aha moment. And I've said that for forever. I've got this girl's picture in front of me. I've got her, the, the first picture ever over there on my thing. I, I still talk to her. This has been 17 years removed, but I still talk to her often and, and follow her with her children and all the things. And she's doing things we know that are against the grain with her community, with her children. And so I always look and reference her because it was, she's the reason I continue to do these things because I see what she, it has done for her and I see what it has done for her family and her trajectory in life. And so whenever there's moments of, oh, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I always remember this one girl in this one moment. It was great. It was powerful. And it was, and her mom did call the president <laughs> and the president was making sure that we were good to go. But yes, so that was but from since, since that very first trip, we went all the way to the top. Right. And ever since then, I've been chiseling all the way back down. It's taken a while to realize that, A, the outdoor space and place is for everyone, but it's not for everyone. There right. will be some place people that just, it's just not their thing. And that's okay. But as long as they, for me, as long as they know that they have an ally and that there are represent representatives like Rue and like Latino Outdoors and like Black People Camp and all those places, as long as they're at least aware of it, when that time comes for them to want to venture in and do it. It's available. Yeah, it's available. The right. access and the equitable thing is, is a huge thing for me. Making sure that I've had rep and making sure that I've had representation of not only gender, but as much cultural diversity as I can on our team has been really important for that optic. Because I know that I'm a six, six foot one, 190 pound white male that wears Patagonia and drives a truck with a canoe or a kayak on top. I get that is sometimes incredibly intimidating for people. Sure. And because it's again, like it's just a thing that people are like, whoa, this guy trying to make sure we have females on our team, people that don't wear Patagonia and whatever, and we're wearing whatever, and but they're out there talking and knowledgeable and can lead a kayak trip locally or be in the swamp and get dirty and have fun at it and be able to say, oh yeah, dude, this is awesome. Y'all come. We saw this, we saw that, we used that, we did, and it's no big deal. Right, so right. 
having some representation of what's on my campus has been, you know, a really important thing. And then being able to get my kids and my students exposed to not only the professional side of it, but also the fun side. Because look, if we're not having fun doing this, then I think sometimes you have to ask the question, then why are we doing this? <laughs> right, what exactly? And I love the bumper sticker that says, my best vacation is your worst nightmare, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's not always, that's not always true because I, for me, my philosophy is that I get one time, I get one shot at this kid. So it better not rain. <laughs> exactly. and, you know, and it better not be a bad situation because <clears throat> the reality is I'm probably not going to get another shot at this kid uh, or these 10 yeah. kids in this band. Yeah. To make this a memorable, quantifiable, relationshipable thing, or they're not going back, and they're not, and then we've lost those ten kids to yeah. the world. Like the when it comes time to vote for preservation conservation issues, they're going to be like, "Oh hell no!" I went on the worst trip. It's just I get that you get one shot, and yeah. I will tell you that when you do get that one shot and you are successful at making those trips memorable and safe and learnable and teachable and all, all the things that you know and I know that we can that we do when it's good but man when it's good man you get repeat customers like it's like it's just chocolate candy they want to sign up it's anecdotal yes but it's also there's some research out there suggesting like when you have an impactful awe moment it's life-changing and you want to do it again and whatever we I mean whatever it is whether it's things we do in our k-12 schools when we have people out there that are just doing creative things and making things memorable and piecing it together, same with outdoor recreation and outdoor education and outdoor leadership and, and outdoor adventure, all the things you want to tournament, when you can make it right and you put in the work to make it right and all the effort and all the energy and man, it's going to have long withstanding effects to these kids and they're going to go out and change their family's lives. And, and I've seen it. I'm so proud that I've been here for the 17 years because for the folks that only go to a place for a few years here and a few years there, I understand that too. And nobody's judging you for having to move for whatever reasons you have to move. But boy, when you can stay with a program and literally build it and change it and recreate and reinvent and then follow it and have your alumni sure. and your people, that's when you start seeing the progress that you're making in your in your community. And so I really have appreciated people that stay with a program and and follow it and champion it and champion the people in it and but that's what we're what we're doing here we do have a, a camp for kids in the summer that mind for me the mindset there is to plant early seeds we take them to the pool and let them stand up board and kayak and canoe we got a grant to buy all this, this youth-sized equipment which is also important yeah um, we know we take them to the rock climbing wall and let them boulder and we're talking about six seven and eight year olds nine ten eleven year olds Black, white, Asian, it doesn't really matter who's coming to the camp. Our philosophy on that is that, again, if you can provide a dynamic, engaging, creative environment, one, hopefully they'll come and see that your university is a place they want to come and study, so your enrollment goes up. And then two, they're going to know that physical activity and outdoor recreation is a term that they're even just aware of. Yeah, Because yeah. you and I both know you can go right now to a K-12 school and say, does anybody know what outdoor recreation is? And they're going to be like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. It's like a blank stare. But you yeah. talk about, hey, does anybody know how to play basketball? And their hands are like, oh, yeah, I know how to play basketball. I play basketball. Sure. Know, basketball. So 
no way am I ever going to try to compete with sports, but I, I certainly want to compete with those, the context that at least the kids in this area are going to know that there's this term of outdoor recreation or outdoor cultures and that there's a bag right here that has a tent in it and you can sleep in it. That's the goal of the youth aspect of it is just getting at least the terminology. So we go to the schools and sometimes set up the tents and drag the canoes in there. Just so the kids are like, when they see it on top of a car, they're like, oh, that's a cool boat you have. No, it's a canoe. Terminology, I think even at this point is important. And and I have a kid and she's, I have an eight-year-old daughter. And I, of course, I have a, a wife who's extremely adventure um, based. But yeah, I think we... We're aware that not everyone gets to do all the things, but boy, we're going to make damn sure that people at least have the knowledge base that there is it, and at least you can go and access it in places that you can. Like wherever those places are, we're going to make sure that they're not hidden, you know, that they're out there and people know you can go there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting because I've seen I've seen like Outdoor Afro be partnering with like REI, I think it is, I, I, on at LinkedIn, and they were just talking about or illustrating something around creating clothing lines mm -hmm. that incorporate like different colors, different patterns in a way that would be attractive to people who come from cultural backgrounds so that they're not, I don't know, I've gone to L. Bean and you know, we go into one of those stores and it's just seen as there's, oh, here's uh, 17 different kinds of khakis and like that kind of spell bean style, which is like yeah. New England. And it's so refreshing to see these different outdoor clothing and gear companies looking at different different things and making it more colorful than just climbing ropes. It used to be climbing ropes were just like one color uh, back in the day. Mm -hmm. And now they're, I don't know, 10 years ago, I remember seeing they had all kinds of colors and now they have even more. And it's just, it's really nice to see people doing that and doing the little things, right? Yeah. To to make it so that it's a little bit more familiar. Yeah. That's interesting too, because it always hasn't been that way. Right. And really, I say personally, it took the outdoor industry a little bit longer than I would have exactly. thought for them to jump on the recognition. <laughs> yeah. But I also know that these are corporations, they're businesses. And so they're looking at market production and market reach. And sure. so they can't just jump all in and risk everything for it. But I will say, yes, Rue Maps work in Outdoor Afro and her partnershiping with the National Park Service and, yep. and REI and some of these big conglomerate companies has been mind blowing. I, I got to see her and listen to her speak at a conference a couple of years ago in, in Virginia um, at the Association for Outdoor Recreation and Education Conference, AOR. And man, she was was wonderful for one, but yeah, her work is extensive. And yeah. she's like my hero a little bit because all my, my entire research <laughs> and education has been, yeah, you got to see. And she was one of those two that when you meet your hero, it was not a disappointment. It was refreshing. But yeah, I think we're, we, myself and our team, we have done the same we have aligned with the same concept. We are trying to be, our marketing stuff is going out to either being silhouettes or it's going out to reflect both female and African-American uh, students. We use our students a lot to market our programs um, in those action photos. I have done, I have suspended myself from trees or um, hanging off of rocks to get the right <laughs> picture. Um, sure. Because like you said, it is powerful. Yeah. 
And it yeah, marketing is one of the big things, right? Marketing is yeah. one of those elements where people don't realize how many unconscious images we have of thousands and thousands of little images that come through, whether it's television or, or online or posters and, and media, where you just, it takes a certain critical mass of people that mm -hmm. get it. And so it's not just a one-time deal, but, right. and it's so important because it, it's, it can either be divisive or it can be inclusive, right? Oh yeah. And it yeah. is, it's amazing how powerful media is. If mm -hmm. you, cause if you don't see yourself, yeah these situations, then you don't see yourself in that situation and, and you won't. And yeah, we've, I've studied a ton of work in marketing because I, we have to market our programs here, our own, in our own office. And yeah, I did want to make sure that we, we were representative to, to the bodies we have on our campus and also to the people in the state. I wanted to make sure that they weren't seeing just a bunch of frat kids going on a kayaking trip or. <laughs> yeah, right. And I say that because that is somewhat representative of other places that I've even had comments about with other students when I do the research is, does your university do a good job of representing you in these scenarios? And the answer is no. And they'll right. say, why? Or what do you see? And it is one of the things where, oh, I see white girls with their sorority letters on, on a raft, or I see a guy who's extremely strong with a tank top on hanging from a rope off a rock. And I had a graduate student and she won't mind if I throw her name in there, but Katie was really apt to that. She was from Mississippi, but from the coast. But she also saw that we had long conversations about it, but she did an entire master's study on the number of magazine covers that are in our industry that showcase a sense of privilege and a sense of Caucasian. And it was like 97% of our magazines have between rock climbing, out rock and ice, canoe and kayak, all the ones that you want to lay out. Sure. They were very, again, you're selling to your demographic, right? But until you change your demographic sales and you're only, you know, you can't sell to anybody That's else. Right. So, um, That's right. it, it was very rare that we saw women on magazine covers. Right. If we did, they were pretty stereotyped of strong women in, I wouldn't say scantily clothed, but light sure. clothing or, or majority were Caucasian males and extremely in, in, in an extremely high, high fit shape, which again is somewhat representative to some of these professional climbers and kayakers. But at the same time, there are, there is an entire group of people like normal people that go exactly. out and rock climb. Like you can, and I do think that Patagonia and some other clothing companies have, and even Nike, they've done a, a better job of trying to normalize their market media. And I think that is helping the outdoor world because we are seeing some marketing. I First time I saw, I think it was Ford truck commercial and it was two African-Americans, a husband and a wife driving a Ford truck in the woods with a kayak on top. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, where's my phone? I got to record this because <laughs> I know. Seriously. Yeah, this was Seriously. Groundbreaking. And then you have all different uh, sizes of people. And yeah. Just, yeah, like you said, most people are not chiseled with uh, whatever 7% body fat. Most people are just average people doing that. And sometimes there's that fear that, oh, I'm going to go out and do and stand on a paddleboard. Are people going to make fun of me because mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not in the most perfect shape that that the that I see in the magazine and that can be off-putting is that oh if I go biking bike touring I've got to wear like skin tight 
mm-hmm. clothing or whatever. And it's just so important to have that representation as well. So all of these things really, really add up, right? And even oh, yeah. into and even into like alternative gender folks. And I, I'm really happy to see that there are inroads being made and, and also to know that there are people like you working in the university and education systems to bring that awareness to them. It's like we have yeah. to penetrate all areas of our culture to bring that awareness and then to say, hey, there's an opportunity here. Hey, this is an invisible barrier. I'm a I'm Hispanic, but I'm also look pretty white. And for the most part, I've always seen that I've never had that experience of, oh, I don't know if I could go rock climbing because I'm not I'm not white enough or whatever. I, I don't even have that experience because I most of the time the things that I've done has had people who uh, were my same color and everything else. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's mean, that was my, not you know, know it. Yeah. yeah. And that was my life too. And so that's where I think a lot of us, people like you and me, I think there was something that changed our mindset of trying to like, oh, look at a different lens. Yeah. And recognize that there is some weirdness here. I don't think that's for everybody though. I do think that there are people and it's not, I, and I don't want to judge them so much, sure. but I do encourage them to take a step back from their own skin sometimes and make sure that they're looking at how we're, how they're representing their programs or their space and place. Because we do have specifically in Mississippi, we're led mostly by white males and most of them have come from privileged backgrounds. And so they, they have never had to look from a different lens because they're filling their rosters or they're filling their vans up with people who look like and refer to and generally to think, oh, I'm doing a good thing. and I'm, There's nothing wrong here. But the diversity, equity, and inclusion really is still just getting its toes in the water, to be honest with you. I know it's been, a, I know that we have lots of workshops and I know that it's been referenced and I know that there are groups out there, but there are still large scale groups of people that don't understand it, don't necessarily think it's important, I'm just misguided with a little bit of that conversation. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I wasn't either. I came from Idaho. I, I rarely, luckily I was privileged, but I also used that privilege to make sure that I was looking at things differently. But it wasn't until I really moved here until I saw, witnessed with my own, in my own community, in my own town, Cleveland, Mississippi is one of the last remaining towns in the nation that had two high schools. It wasn't until 2017 that we still had the East Side High, which is mostly the black family with the black school, yep. which was at one point a Negro school. Mm-hmm. And then we had Cleveland High, which was the majority white. And again, there is a railroad bed in the center of my town. And so the whole phrase about across the tracks kind of thing, that yeah. was like the most literal thing. Yep. When I moved there and I, I had no idea that we would still have, because I came from a small town with one school. Right. And everybody went there. We didn't, I had never even heard of private schools or independent schools or white only or white flight or all of those things to me were, again, if, if you're not in a region that has those problems and those barriers, I promise you, you don't hear about them and you don't no. care about them. And you don't get it. You just don't get it no. when it happens, right? No. Yeah, that's been really interesting to me to see the awareness begin to grow in our culture and to see the amount of people that push back against it or who are just really uncomfortable because they suddenly realize 
whoa, there's this whole thing going on that I don't even know about. Yeah. And I feel really embarrassed or ashamed or just just horrified. I don't know. But- I saw I saw that movie Killers of the Flower Moon uh, a couple nights ago. And I just can't even conceive of how someone could do the things to another human being, you know, that, and with a straight face and lie and do all, I I just can't even imagine that. And yet it it goes on all the time today when it went on back then. I mean, whether, you know, whether it's like the Native Americans, like that show or the Tulsa, Oklahoma, or any of these things, it's just my, to me, I can't even fathom. It makes me like sick to my stomach to even, to really even just get it. Um, yeah how painful it is yeah and it is and it was really hard i'm not gonna be on i'm gonna be on with you ricardo like it was hard to swallow for a while and then and i'm gonna be even more honest with you there were times when i really wanted to leave yeah because it just wasn't a place that i felt comfortable living because it wasn't gonna change this is something that's lots of years hundreds of years of exactly of built up philosophy I, I guess you could say it's a philosophy because i think to me a philosophy is something that you believe in right so right. if you believe that white school only if you believe that there should be a, a school for whites only and that you if you believe that there should be this other place for other people and that there's this differentiation of humanism yeah then i don't know if that's a place that i want to be yeah i will say this the university i work for however is the antithesis of that yeah but we're like this oasis in the center of this strange world of there are like there is that group of people that just don't believe that there's equality and that doesn't need to be equity in things and such. And I wouldn't say they're wearing the hoods and having up memberships anymore, although I don't I wouldn't say that they're <laughs> but at the same time, they're not out here fighting an ally you being an allyship for it either and there and we still have a thriving majority white only school not far from here and we have another one over there and another one down there and then of course you have two schools the high two high schools and two middle schools for the longest time until the ninth circuit court district supreme court in new orleans came in and said (laughs) y'all what are you doing yeah you cannot do this anymore this is and they fought it both sides fought it yeah, yeah. It wasn't just, oh, okay. It was like 10 years of fighting to keep their own schools because the African-Americans wanted their own school because they were it was a legacy school and they were better performing school than the, the white school. There was more allegiance, more history. But, and so, yeah, it ripped this town apart. We really had to like start over with yeah, the K-12. Yeah. And I only bring this up because these are the consistent barriers that I deal with, even in my field of sport, and recreation is that we have two baseball fields in town. We have one over here where a majority of the white people live. And then we have the one over there, the East side park, which yeah. has historically not always been kept up. There have been some issues with crime. And so families at one point, not even that long ago, like a few years ago, white families refused to go and play in the tournament. So even in my world of sport, I have barriers of race and, and, DEI issues in sport. And then on the outdoor recreation side, I have issues of place and space, acceptance, knowledge base of even wanting to do it. I've had plenty of students in my research suggest that 
well, outdoor recreation doesn't really give me anything. There's what do I get for doing it? Oh. And that's that's a valid question because in sport you get some kind of, of entertainment value, or you're participant, or you're a or a or you're a participant in on a team. So you get some. There is some type of reward. It might be intrinsic or whatnot, but there is, and that's what they're used right. to. If they score a bucket, it's oh, high five. A yeah. slap on the butt and it's a good job. A tribal thing, right? Try, you get yeah. a, like, an identity, you get a cultural identity and you're part of, a, a, you're part of the in-group, right? If you sleep in a tent with me in the woods, what do you get? <laughs> I know, right? Well, you get to take it down, uh, pack it back up. <laughs> you get some coffee if I have any leftover. <laughs> oh, you better cook it on your, but you better have your own jet boil because if you're cooking, and if you sell like, for them, it's just, man, why would I want to come and risk it all? <laughs> True. Uh, versus I can just go and play or I can go and watch basketball. And that was a majority of my dissertation research was I, I interviewed students, African-American students at all four of our major institutions in, in Mississippi. And you have to remember, Old Miss and State are in the SEC conference. They have dominant teams, basketball, baseball. Yeah. We have national championships. The women's team a few years ago at Mississippi State were, were a national competitor. And, and they get free tickets. Yeah. And when are those games? Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. Or whatever, uh, Thursday, yeah. Fridays, and Saturdays, for sure. And when are outdoor trips? Yeah. Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. So in Mississippi, we're not only competing for your time to go and explore a space and place that is not been friendly to you yep. and your family, but we're also competing with a dominant sport culture right that majority african americans play in and have mm -hmm. played in and their families have maybe played in or participated in with one of the largest rivalries in the country sure, between sure. mississippi state and Ole miss and you want to talk about a culture we could go on a whole other episode and talk about that culture but then right. you also have southern mississippi which is a major player in the usa conference and has a large brett Favre, and there is some so sport here is and I had a colleague at Old Miss that she too is Old Miss, twenty five thousand students, majority white, and she could barely fill her van right her vans on the weekends, especially in the fall, to go do anything local. She finally had to like partner with the football program, and so whenever they went to an away game, they would take a van with students to get into the free to the game and then do something locally with an outdoor feel. But it had yeah. to be done by noon so they could go to that game. That was sure, the only sure. way. They would camp out Friday night, which was a brilliant concept. Oh, that's awesome. Trying to integrate your barriers. And then Delta State, we have a dominant Division II football team. It's been a national champion. And yeah, there's a lot of competition. And we, so I, when I'm doing my schedules in the fall and spring, I'm always trying to schedule our trips when there's either an away game or, a, or when games are not being played, if there's a bye weekend. And, and, and that's difficult too or over break spring break fall break thanksgiving break christmas you just so you're always trying to like find your place in scheduling things and then knowing that if there's a home old miss game you ain't getting nobody like they're gonna go to that game <laughs> and if they're doing well that season then it just makes it even more difficult because now we're dealing with basketball season coming up in the fall and spring and we don't we can't even hardly really program until after march because until march madness happens it's just Kids are going to be, our kids in Mississippi are just so sport driven and because that's really all they have. 
where I came from in Idaho, we didn't even have a professional team. I, I still went to school. I told you this, I think, but when I still went to school with gun racks. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, exactly. My friends just went hunting like at four in the morning and are just showing up to make sure they made it in time for class with 30 six fours. And sometimes even at lunch, they'd go out and open their tailgate and they would clean their rifles during school because they were about to go hunting again well, or fishing or they would compare. Like I had friends that would be like, oh yeah, check out my thing that I got or check out mine. Can you imagine today if a kid showed up with a 30-06 with a scope, full rifle in his truck and at lunch went out and opened his tailgate and sat on it when he was cleaning the barrel? Can you imagine what that would, the concept today? And I'm not trying to trivialize that guns and stuff in school, but what I'm saying is I grew up in a, an entirely different time and then also in an entirely different culture of like hunting and fishing were mechanisms that you use to be outdoors for a purpose, for food. But they are also just so common. And here it's just we have a little we have a little national wildlife refuge called Dahomey, which is really beautiful. It's about 15 minute drive and a 15 minute drive. And I still have students in even our field here, sport and recreation, who have never been there, don't even know what it is, never been there. Yeah, like this program, when I talked earlier about how we've really scaled down, yeah, we have really started to include micro adventures, things that are just within our own region, even on our own campus, like with setting up disc golf courses on our campus to driving them out to Dahomey for a nature hike, doing something of our local swamp to paddle around just to see. In the spring, I'm going to be writing for a grant to fund game cams. And the intent there, or the question there the, for the research question is, is that if I give a student a game cam and, and I say, I want, we're going to, we're going to, I want you to put this game cam up somewhere out in the woods. And then over the next three or six months, your job is to go check the game cam as much as you can and learn from it. Yeah. How do we, how do you, if does using that type of technology enhance their meaningfulness to be outdoors because they're learning about their environment locally? And then does it also entice them to be more physically active to go out and get the cam because the cams that we're going to get obviously is that got the card in it so yeah. you have to go physically out to the game cam wherever you have placed it using a canoe hiking biking or whatever it is and then you have to get the card bring it back in and then you have to learn what you saw on the card and if you didn't see anything on the card then you got to go back out get the game cam put it somewhere else where you think there's going to be some type of activity and so my my hope is that these game cams are going to be like some type of motivation for that carrot that the, some of the kids were saying, what do I get from it? You get to borrow our canoes for free or our, you get to, or our bike. You get to go out. You get to be a part of this research. You get to have a game cam to go on to use, to find and to learn about your space and place. And if you're lucky, I might mention your name in the publication. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because some people I would imagine at college might also see going out and doing some kind of activity and getting like relief from anxiety. So having mm -hmm. a sense of inner peace or a sense of connection or some kind of benefit that could relate to that mental health uh, aspect that could be maybe seen as really enticing. And I've seen other programs where they combine like hiking and yoga, or they combine it with some other different 
kinds of like mindfulness, or maybe it's about getting in shape for your uh, athletic career or something. All right, we're going to do some biking. We're going to mix it up. We're going to do not just running, but hiking, something, anything that would just get them moving in that direction or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it it's really complicated. It's way more complicated than most people think. I, I, I know that's true. And I just, I think that the work you're doing is just really phenomenal. I, I appreciate it so much. I, I appreciate that. That's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, this is really great. I, I really feel like this is something that is is really important for educators all over the world to really understand and internalize so that they can be aware to capture like those aha moments where suddenly we go, oh, wow, these kids aren't really getting it or there's a reason why they're more nervous or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. A couple of things that have helped me for educators, I think one is that you got to be open to knowing that you're not always right and that you that there are differences. And for mm-hmm. me, I had a really great colleague who was our DEI coordinator. Of course, she really opened my mind up to the diversity, equity, inclusion. But one of the things that she always really mentioned in a lot of her workshop was that you need to go and follow some of these, especially on social media, you need to go and follow some of the, the groups that you don't really align with. And agree with. If you're truly going to be an, a, an educator, you need to go follow Patty Gonya and Black People Can Camp and Root Map and the Brothers of Climbing and sure. just start searching for these things and follow them, not because you're supporting them or their philosophies or their life choices, but just so you're aware of perhaps their struggles or their stories or just seeing what's like, seeing what's out there because. The problem with social media and is that it keeps you in your lane. Like you, it puts blinders up and it just puts you in this tunnel and it's only going to feed you what you continue to eat. And so until you ask and start searching for things that are outside your comfort zone, you should be searching about and learning about the transgender and you should learning about and searching about LGBTQ, not because you're, that's your thing. It's because if you're truly an educator, you're going to have students that is their thing and you need to be able to be an ally for them. So that thing for me, number one, that was like the biggest, again, thing that I started to recognize was, yeah, I want to, you're right. She's right. You need to go and just explore. Um, I'm not going out and liking everything, but I'm definitely watching and observing and learning and seeing that. Like you brought up the mental wellness and the mindfulness. I think that you're absolutely right. But I also think that is something that's not being talked about enough. And I don't think that we are putting enough effort and energy into making sure that our college kids are even aware what that term means. I still have college kids that are student athletes that I bring it up often in my classes. If I teach sport history and I teach other facility design and some administration classes and leadership classes. And so in all of those, I talk about, are you aware of what mental wellness even means and a large majority do not so i don't think that we're doing a good enough job in our k-12 or in our at home about acknowledging and recognizing and discussing i had another colleague that she that she talked about the difficulty of leaning into these conversations rather than just staying out and she teaches mindfulness yeah look i'm in higher ed it's we get to be at this top and everything we get to see and 
but and I get that. It is a privilege to work at higher ed, and I'm honored to be here. I truly am. And I know it comes with a great responsibility, but I think those things also come with being open and being able to and want to know about your kids and your people and finding ways to, to be an ally. And uh, the third thing that I can recommend to educators is to go and be involved in professional organizations and go to conferences, even if sometimes it's on your own dime. I just got back from Madison, Wisconsin to and attended the Association for Experiential Education. And boy, look, it's a lot of work here, no doubt. And I get sometimes in a rut. But I went to that conference and, of course, presented a research poster. And But I came back with renewed spirit, energy. I came back meeting some contacts. I came back with ideas. I saw different things from different lenses. I met with, I saw people. I was inspired by people. I can't, I really sometimes can't give enough credit to, and, and one of the big topics was mental wellness on outdoor you know, expeditions and how we teach and navigate the mental wellness issues and with kids in leadership positions or, and yeah, look, those going to those conferences for me, especially as another educator, I do think, and I don't want, and I don't also think that you should go to the same one. There is much value to go to different ones. I've been to WEAEE, AORE, the, the Alliance for PE Health and Recreation and Dance, uh, I've been to the NURSA, the National Intramural Recreational Sports Association. I've been to a, I know American Camp Association. They all have a real different, their mission is the same, right? We're all trying to do whatever, but they all have really different angles and different groups of people. And I've just been really fascinated by going to those conferences and attending and being able to learn because I, I, it really frustrates me when I have educators or colleagues that don't want to go and do anything different they're comfortable and i'm it's just i i think until yeah i just i that's those are three things that i think that if you want to have some takeaways that have helped me be more of a educated person in this field i think that's been really important to me yeah that's it's true that a lot of those conferences opportunities everything is it they i don't always think that the people that put those conferences together, really promote it, promote it. They just go, Hey, it's a conference. It's in Springfield, Missouri or Santa Barbara or wherever. And then they just list a thousand people that many of them you might not have heard of. Yeah. And then they're just like, Oh, here's all these workshops and all these classes and lectures and everything else. And it, it just, it doesn't necessarily convey like, oh yeah, you're going to fly there. You're going to stay at a hotel. You're going to be like, it's going to cost a bunch of money and then you're going to be there. And the people that have gone know the value. The people that don't go really have no idea. So yeah. we, I think that's some one area that we could probably use help also promoting for professionals who want to expand their, like you said, look through different lenses, experience things in a new way and get re-inspired because it's, this is hard work. The work that you're doing every day, the work that people do in outdoor education every day, it's way harder than I think people think. A lot of times they're like, oh yeah, you're just going to take a bunch of kids in the woods. Oh, you're just having fun. And I'm like, yeah, you have no idea how much work yeah. it is. <laughs> To put it all together, keep everybody safe and work, worry, deal with all the stuff you deal with. And I'm just like, hey, you know what? I'd love to whatever stock shelves in a grocery yeah. store. <laughs> I've had some colleagues in the same 
on that same vein, oh man, you're lucky you get to go and camp and do this and do that. And I'm like, yeah, I am lucky because it is a fortunate that I do enjoy what I do. But I've expressed to them, like the minute I get in that van and turn it on, there's this stress level that I hold that really, in some cases, I find myself even shaking, especially going to somewhere big. There, just a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety that I hold until the minute I get back and turn the van off. Because if one thing doesn't go to plan, one thing, it just is a major wrench in 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 the system, and and the matrix goes crazy. <laughs> oh yeah, but so it is a lot of work. But I we work really hard as an edu- as educators that are preparing the next group of people to be outdoor leaders that they do go through all the risk management and they do through all these scenarios. And we we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and we talk about mental wellness. And I'm hopeful that all of our outdoor programs, nature-based, field, what I mean, philosophical groups, whatever it is, I'm hoping they are including those modules in because we do need to ensure that we are talking about those uncomfortable things, leaning into that conversation. And even if you don't, again, agree with whatever it is, doesn't mean that you can't at least have a combo, you know, a civilized conversation about it and at least just present what's being talked about as a, yeah. as an educator so that other people at least have the exposure to what it is and have had had a chance to have a conversation about it. Because typically, if they're going to have conversations about it, they're going to be with people in their own lane that are assimilate to their own belief. And then right. the conversation goes nowhere except straighter that way, while the other group have their conversations, which goes straighter that way. And we never really ever get a chance to ever come to the middle. My whole thing is that my classroom is truly a melting pot of ideas and thoughts and processes. And what we talk about in here doesn't necessarily mean that I'm trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to bring things to your awareness so that you are an educated person. You can still make your own decisions when you leave here. But we are talking about mental wellness today. And we're going to talk about these scenarios and these issues that have happened. And we are going to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and African-American statistics and participation rates and impoverishment. And and if you don't want to, if you still feel like... Now, one thing we don't talk about is flat earth. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, what's interesting, too, I remember when people were really getting really upset about like critical race theory. Yeah. And you could see people in interviews and they would go, hey, what are you against? And they're like, we don't want critical race theory. And they're like, what is critical race theory? And they're like, it's a bunch of stuff and I'm not really sure. Yeah. And, but we don't want it. And I think, yeah, it's okay to learn what it actually is so that you can then make an educated decision rather, and maybe understand, oh yeah, is that being taught in kindergarten? Yeah, no, or mm-hmm. whatever. And so- I think that's true for for everybody to just keep learning because I know for me it seems like when if you were somebody who was in an alternative gender or whatever you're someone of color and mm-hmm. you every inner every interaction you have with people who you don't know could theoretically go sideways and it means yeah. the world to them when they you have that interaction and it's positive and you go, oh, that person understands a little bit about me. So therefore, they're not assuming anything mm-hmm. or they're asking good questions that let me know I'm with somebody who actually gets me. And that really seems to help those people feel safe and feel good. And, yeah. and most people don't understand how unsafe, just like you said at the beginning of this, how unsafe that mom felt about your first person in your, in your trip to Moab. Just 
helping them understand that so that we we just don't understand how fearful it can be. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I I feel like this is a this is really a huge piece of our uh, current generation. Uh, having compassion, understanding these issues, the DEI aspects. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. I've learned a lot from just listening to you. And I'm really excited that you're there. It makes me super happy. Uh, I hope to meet you at a conference someday or maybe even yeah. to Mississippi and, and do that. Thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, man, it's been really great. I've loved your podcast and all the things that you're doing too. It's always nice to meet other like-minded people that want to spread good word and good news about our field. I'm just, it's been a real privilege to be here with you today and and just talk about things that we're passionate about. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator, nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.